Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family and friends. This begins the first of many episodes that we will be broadcasting each week. We've titled the series Memories of a Great Airline as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. Stories by former Eastern people and friends of this former airline. Your storytellers will be reading stories found in the many publications, the Eastern publications, from 1927 until today, as we receive recall memories of those sending us their stories to be told on the air. The radio show is part of the Eastern Airline Radio Show and the Airline Radio Talk Show, which is done each Saturday at 1 p.m., the same listening tune-in is still blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. And as you would listen to the talk show heard on Saturday, except the new show will be broadcast on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. No need to call in as it is pre-recorded, which is what we call podcasting, and usually runs about an hour per each episode. If you miss the broadcast at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, you can always listen at your convenience by clicking on the episode number. Mr. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be the initial storytellers, but Others will be joining the show as we continue to go on air. Harry was a former Eastern employee in the pilot scheduling department. Neil was a pilot based in Atlanta. 
The show was created to fill in the gap of Eastern Airlines memories that the airline radio talk show does not broadcast to the extent it did for the past 11 years. Highlights of the show will be sent out each week via Facebook on the Internet. You can also find the content in the archive with the description of each broadcast. In addition to these great stories and memories, we will insert the Eastern TV and radio ads from the 40s to the very last commercial run by Eastern. We hope you enjoy both the stories and Eastern commercials. Now, let's start the show with this first story as read by Harry Lindquist. Harry? The relationship that brought Edward, Eddie, Vernon Rickenbacker, and Eastern Airlines together began on Christmas Day in 1932 when Eddie and his wife, Adelaide, visited Ernest R. Breach and his wife, Thelma, at their home in Larchmont, the wealthy suburb of New York. After the visit, Eddie asked Ernest, who was a general assistant treasurer at General Motors and director of TWA, if he can have an appointment with him for the next morning. The next day in the meeting, Eddie, who was the vice president of governmental affairs for American Airways, told Breach that the planned merger of his parent company, American Air Transport, and the bankrupted North American Aviation was doomed and suggested that GM take steps to acquire the bankrupt holding company, NAA. Breach was interested. The CEO of GM, Alfred P. Sloan, liked the idea pitched by Rickenbacker, and Breach began because an acquisition would expand its diversification into aviation. In the new year, General Motors immediately began the negotiations with Cheever Cowden of Bank America, Blair, the trustee group that controlled North America's assets, which included EAT, TWA, Curtis Wright Corporation, and Douglas Aircraft. On February 28, 1933, GM acquired NAA. Rickenbacker had resigned from American Airways 10 days earlier. Breach, who was named president of North American Aviation, appointed Rickenbacker the vice president of public relations. Rickenbacker, who had previously worked for GM-owned Fokker Aircraft Corporation of America before going to American Airways, was now back home at the General Motors building on Broadway. Rickenbacker was no average corporate executive. He was an authentic American hero. Edward Rickenbacker, third child of William and Elizabeth Basler Rickenbacker, was born on October 8, 1890 in a house at 247 South Pearl Street in Columbus, Ohio. His parents gave him no middle name, so he later added the name Vernon because it had a sort of class to it. His parents were poor immigrants from Switzerland who came to America for better opportunity. At the end of Eddie's birth, William was a brewery worker, but soon lost his job to take on mostly laborer work. At age five, Eddie Rickenbacker woke up at 4 a.m. each morning and walked two miles to the office of the Columbus Dispatch to get his papers ready for delivery. At this early age, he was already a smoker of bull Durham tobacco. He rolled himself into cigarettes. He rummaged rags, bones, and rusty nails and sold them to Sam the junk dealer. Eddie was a ringleader of the Horsehead Gang that committed various petty crimes to the dismay of his parents. He was taunted at school because of his ragged dress, his short height, and his Swiss-Dutch-English accent. On August 26, 1904, his father, William, died from a head wound sustained in a previous fight with William Gaines. 
William had been dr- struck by a heavy paving tool. Gaines was later convicted of the crime and spent 10 years in the state penitentiary. The day after the funeral, Eddie, now age 14, took a 12-hour night shift job paying 3.50 per week at the Federal Glass Factory on Parsons Avenue. He never attended school again after having only completed the seventh grade. During the next three years, Eddie worked at a foundry, a brewery, a shoe factory, and for a tombstone maker. His next job was with the Columbus Maintenance Shops of the Pennsylvania Railroad as an apprentice machinist earning a dollar a day. He was injured on the job and was bedridden for a few weeks. After recovering, he decided to take a position for a pay cut to 75 cents a day at Evans Garage at 140 East Chestnut Street where he could work on his growing love, horseless carriages. While gaining knowledge of internal combustion engines and automobile repair work, he took a correspondence course from International Correspondence Schools in Scranton on mechanical engineering related to automobiles and engines. Realizing that he needed more shop training than Evans could give him, Eddie encouraged Oscar Lear, the principal owner of the Oscar Lear Automobile Company, to hire him. Leary was one of many motor vehicle companies in Columbus. Their three-story production plant was located at the corner of Gay and Fourth Streets across to Evans College. Eddie expanded his automotive mechanical skills and learned to work with laves, presses, shapers, and grinders and helped to build carburetors, steering gears, axles, transmissions, and ignition systems. Since the automobiles were assembled in place with no assembly line, Eddie knew every part of the automobile and knew how it worked. Soon he was transferring to the engineering department under chief designer Lee A. Freyer. While working with Freyer on building three race cars for the 1906 Vanderbilt Cup race on Long Island, Eddie was asked to attend the event with the drivers and crew. He accepted and was given the opportunity to be a riding mechanic for the Freyer Miller Racing Team. In the race vehicle, Eddie's duties were to help monitor the gauges and keep gasoline and oil flowing into the engine, changing tires, and more. It was extremely dangerous but thrilling for a 16-year-old automobile mechanic as the vehicle reached 70 miles per hour. Unfortunately, they were able to qualify for the race with a seized piston. Soon after the race, he and mentor Freyer took positions at the Columbus Buggy Company, headed by Clinton DeWitt Firestone. Eddie was the head of the test department and chief test driver for buggies powered by combustion engines. Soon Eddie was starting dealerships around the country for the company and earning a salary of $150 per month at age 19. One of the ways to promote car dealerships was to host auto races, and at Red Oak, Iowa, at a new racetrack at Pactolis Park, Eddie participated in his first career race on June 16, 1910. Driving the company's Firestone Columbus automobile, Eddie, with his riding mechanic, Glenn Spies, crashed through a fence and turned over. At Atlantic near Red Oak, Eddie drove to his first win on June 29th. After winning two more races, he came away in his two-day affair with a total of $625. Eddie was ecstatic and on his way to a successful auto racing career. By the end of the 1913 season, Eddie Rickenbacker was nationally ranked at 27th and called the nerviest and most unerring of them all. During 1915, Eddie earned $24,000 in winnings and Motor Age magazine called him unquestionably one of the greatest of American drivers. Eddie was invited by Louis Cotallon, the chief designer for British Sunbeam, to visit him. 
On December 13, 1916, Eddie receives his U.S. passport from Washington bearing these personal characteristics. Height, 6 feet, half an inch. Eyes, brown. Forehead, high. Hair, light brown. Complexion, fair. Face, oval. Chin, square. Nose, regular. He sailed from New York aboard the St. Louis and reached Liverpool a few days before Christmas. Because of his racing celebrity, a British tabloid published a fake story that he was Baron Edward von Rickenbacker, a young Prussian nobleman. This would lead British intelligence to hound him throughout his visit. In England, he was awed by the Royal Flying Corps and wanted to join them, but Kotalin advised him to return to the U.S. Eddie decided then and there that he would eventually become a combat pilot for the United States. When Germany announced that it would commence unrestricted submarine warfare in February, the U.S. broke diplomatic relations with Germany. Eddie departed Liverpool on February 3, 1917, aboard the St. Louis for New York. The United States declared war on Germany on April 6. President Woodrow Wilson decided to send Army General John J. Pershing with an expeditionary force to Europe. Major Louis Burgess, a racing fan working on forming the unit, called Eddie and asked if he wished to become one of Pershing's chauffeurs. Eddie packed his bags and was listed around noon on May 28, 1917 in the U.S. Army as a sergeant. He sailed that day aboard the Baltic, a White Star liner. Promoted en route to Sergeant First Class, Eddie landed at Liverpool on June 8. That afternoon, he and Pershing's staff took a train to London where Eddie settled in at the Tower of London with the other non-commissioned officers. While the officers and aides stayed in luxury at the Savoy, he slept on straw. After doing some sightseeing in London, Eddie moved with the staff across the English Channel and arrived in Paris on June 13, 1917. For the next months, Eddie drove for Pershing and Major Dobbs, his chief aviation officer. He was eventually transferred to General Billy Mitchell's staff and became Mitchell's personal driver after he demonstrated his automobile engine repair skills. One day saw Eddie talking, uh, saw Mitchell talking with some French officers across from the American Aviation Headquarters in Paris. After the conversation with the French had ended, Eddie walked over, saluted, and asked Mitchell if he would become a pilot. Mitchell asked, How the hell old are you, Eddie? Eddie responded immediately, 25, although he was actually 27, which was two years over the limit for Army Air Service flight training. Although Eddie felt that Mitchell knew he was lying, Mitchell approved his transfer. Eddie soon headed off for preliminary flight training at the Second Aviation Instruction Center at Tours, France. He completed training and soloed after only 17 days. He received his brevet his pilot's license from the French Air Service and was commissioned a first lieutenant in the Signal Corps. He was assigned as the chief engineer to the new air base at the American Aviation School at Esseldon, France. There he came to rescue. Here, there he came to resent the pilot trainees from wealthy aristocratic families arriving from the U.S. He feared he would have to stay at this training school, maintaining the buildings and repairing aircraft for what he considered to be pampered snobs. To improve his flying skills, he took unfamiliar planes out of the hangars and flew without authorization. Assisted by his boss, Captain Carl A. Spots, officer in charge of the American Aviation School, Eddie went to gunnery training on January 3, 1918 at Cazot, 
a resort 40 miles southwest of Bordeaux on the Sea of Biscay. Then an order on February 19th sent him to an advanced training at Villeneuve Les Bertus with the 94th Aerial Pursuit Squadron. Eddie's military aviation career was now on the move. The 94th had to wait for the Newport 28 biplanes to be available before going on missions against the Germans. The Newport was an aircraft with the lower wing shorter than the upper wing, sporting a 160 horsepower air-cooled single-valve nine-cylinder rotary engine. The only way to control airspeed was to vary the number of cylinders firing by use of a blip switch. The airplane was armed with a Vickers machine gun. On March 15th, the command at Chaumont sent the 94th across the German lines in World War I with two unarmed groups of three planes, each with French escorts. Eddie was among the pilots. In five days with the 94th, Eddie was only one of three flight leaders in the squadron. He made his first armed combat mission over enemy territory on March 28, 1918. Eddie shot down his first German plane, a false D-111, on Saturday, April 19th, near Basal. By May 28th, he had become an ace, having shot down five enemy planes. General Gerard, commander of the 8th French Army Corps, awarded Eddie the Croix de Guerre, and he was promoted to flight leader as the American band played the Star-Spangled Banner. Eddie scored his sixth skill on May 30, but soon developed an ear infection and was out of action until mid-September. That month of the 14th, he shot down the best German fighter aircraft they had, the Fokker D-7, and repeated that feat the next day. Promoted to captain on September 24, Eddie was named the commander of the 94th Aero Squadron. The next day, he shot down two German planes, and later in 1931, he would receive a belated Medal of Honor from President Hoover for that, for that action. By the armistice, Eddie Rickenbacker had 26 confirmed kills of German aircraft and balloons, which would be the American record held until World War II. In addition, Eddie had flown 300 total combat hours, more than any other U.S. pilot in World War I. The 94th Aero Squadron became the most famous U.S. squadron in the war, sporting a distinctive hat-in-the-ring insignia. Eddie was now America's ace of aces and a national hero. He had earned the Distinguished Services Medal with nine Oak League clusters and the French Croix de Guerre five times. Knowing that you could be a hero today and a bum tomorrow, he wanted to capitalize on his fame for producing an account of his aerial career on the Western Front. On November 16, 1918, he signed a, current, uh, signed a contract with Lawrence Latourette-Driggs to edit and revamp his account of his experiences for magazines in a book. Eleven days later, he received orders to return to the U.S. and sell Liberty Bonds. On January 20, 1919, Eddie sailed from Liverpool above the Adriatic, aboard the Adriatic, arriving at the docks in New York on Friday, January 31, to hordes of journalists and his mother and a sister, Emma.
Beyond the Call of Duty by Jim Hart, an alert from Atlanta CDC. On Friday, July 3rd, 1964, I was on duty as system manager of commercial sales at the New York home office at 10 Rockefeller Plaza. Naturally, that afternoon, everyone was looking forward to the long weekend when at 4 p.m. I received a telephone call from Atlanta telling of a chilling event that would impact the plans for 20 of my experienced employees. On a flight to Newark originating in Orlando with stops in Jackson, Raleigh-Durham, Richmond, and Washington, D.C., a lady boarded with a sick child and sat in the middle of the DC-7. During the flight, the baby seemed to become more severely ill with a climbing temperature. Immediately upon arrival at Newark, the child was taken to a local hospital, but the child died. Because of the sudden onset of the illness, the hospital ran some tests to try to learn the reason for the baby's death. It didn't take them long to determine the malady was a highly contagious disease called viral meningitis caused by a meningococcal bacteria that needed to be acted upon as soon as possible by anyone remotely exposed to it. The hospital called the Atlanta Communicable Disease Center and told them of the event that it involved Eastern. Atlanta then told of the seriousness of the situation. We had to contact every passenger and have them contact their doctor with the information they had given regarding the antidote. I immediately briefed the staff on the situation and asked each one if they could stay all night if necessary to get the job done. All agreed to stay. I assigned each stopover of the flight to two people who were to call or try to contact the passengers. Those unable to find anyone at home arranged for a note to be left asking the passenger to contact us. At about 10 p.m., I received a call from CBS News asking what all the calling was about so late at night. I told them that we were on a telephone blitz to travel agents and commercial accounts about some new services that we are offering. That seemed to satisfy them, and we didn't hear another thing. It was 2 a.m. when we had contacted each passenger in some way or another. The last four were sailors who were transferred to New York City to TWA bound for Spain and we were able to contact them in flight thanks to our friends at TWA. They saw a base doctor upon arrival. For a few weeks after this event, we received calls from passengers returning home and finding the note on their front door asking them to contact us. Our answer this time was, How are you feeling? Do you, did you have a good vacation? Their response was that it was very nice of us to follow up on their trip. This event was during the days of the Reservations Roundtable, some call Susan, which enabled us to keep an accurate listing of reservation calls. 
None of Eastern's other employees or our director, Walter Conrad, and possibly President Floyd Hall, ever learned of this event. Philadelphia and Boston, and a unique new dining service is worth riding home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce. Prepare it as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet. Quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. The Gooseneck Oiler. On one unusually hot April day in 1965, we finished our layover in Raleigh-Durham and showed up at the airport about noon. As I was a pile-up engineer on the Electra, it was my immediate job to go to the plane and get it cool for the captain. As those who have flown her know, that does not take much skill. As the close to full load of passengers were boarding for the short flight up to Newark, I commenced my walk around. All appeared fine, except I found the number two engine was low on prop oil. Now this was not good. About the only thing I recalled from the engine portion of the ground school was that we did not want to run out of that stuff. By this time, Captain Chuck Alton and First Officer Bob Cook had seated themselves in the nicely cooled cockpit and were waiting our departure. So when I showed up and announced what I had discovered, Chuck calmly told me to add some oil. Knowing that Raleigh at that time did not have mechanics, I asked, How in the world could I do that? He said, Try getting a ladder for starters. I then whined that I did not know how, and besides, a special tool to put it through the hub surely was not on the airport anywhere. He then told me to take off the filler plug back under the cowl. I knew I was in trouble then, as clearly the captain knew about the double secret auxiliary method of adding prop oil. I then allowed as how I did not have a license to do it. Again, he gently told me to get to work. I then firmly said it was just too hot outside. After what he said then, I went looking for a ladder. Well, 20 minutes later, I'm up on a rickety ladder with my entire toolkit, gloves, short slot screwdriver, and a little crescent wrench. With the baggage boys holding the ladder, I commenced to open the cowl. All the while, half the passengers were watching me out the windows on the left side. To say I was nervous was an understatement. After getting the cowl open, I used a screwdriver to break off the safety wire and then attacked the filler plug with a miniature wrench. Immediately, it slipped off the nut end and went clickety-clacking down to the innards of the engine, wires, hoses, and greasy places. Down off the ladder, I went, and not too soon, the entire engine was available for viewing. The wrench was on the bottom of the cowl and fell out onto the concrete as it opened. Easily the best thing that happened the entire trip. I seriously doubted I could ever get this thing put back together again. Upon the ladder again, and this time, not only all the well-delayed passengers had found a way to stare at me, 
but I could see the captain leaning around, looking back and probably wondering what he had done to deserve me on this trip. After I got the plug out, the boys below passed me up a 1935 Texaco gooseneck oiler. This had about eight quarts of oil in it, ready to go into the prop oil thingy. I braced myself against the exposed engine, somehow wrapped my left leg around the ladder, grabbed one of the spark plugs, and with my remaining hand, stuck the gooseneck into the hole, then lifted it up high and pulled the trigger. Well, the oil came out of the tank as advertised and entered the gooseneck. But at that point, it split like a mountain torrent and encountering a boulder in the middle of the stream. Half went into the engine, and the other half came down my upstretched arm, into and under my shirt, down my side, staying pretty much inside my pants and pulling into my right shoe. I was concerned that it would overflow and make a mess on the ramp, but it seemed my clothes sopped up most of it, and my shoe was able to contain the overflow. This seemed to please the baggage boys as they were laughing, most likely as happy about not having to clean up their ramp. After spreading more oil everywhere, from my hand and arm, I was able to get the filler plug back in. Then somehow got the cow closed and headed back to the stairs. I got even with the baggage boys, though, as each step of my right foot left a large area of oil I had to clean. This not, did not seem to upset them very much, however, as they continued to laugh. Upon entering the cockpit, I noticed that Chuck seemed sincerely concerned about my sorry state of affairs and only slid a seat a little to the left as I slept down, sat down. Bob Cook had the same humorous manner as the baggage boys, so I guess he was not too worried about the ramp. I must have gotten enough oil in, though, as I was fine on the flight to Newark. Could not say the same for my right shoe.
the day goes by, feel yourself in it. It's a good day to up and fly away. It's so easy to do. Eastern's got the right time and the right place for you. Eastern's transition from props to jets. The 10-year switchover in a nutshell. On January 1, 1960, Eastern had 180 piston-powered aircraft and 40 turboprop electric Electras. The prop liners comprised 104 with four engines, 48 Douglas DC-7Bs, and 56 Lockheed Constellation Super Constellations, plus 76 twins, 56 Martin 404s, and 20 Convair 440s. Ten years later, the piston-powered airplanes had all been replaced by 222 jets. The last prop liner retired was the Convair 440 in 1969. Thus, 1970 was the first all-turbojet year, not counting the Electrus and air shuttle backup, with the average block speed reaching 370 miles an hour. In 1970, the productivity in terms of available seat miles per airplane was between two and three times that of 1959. Contributing to this was a one-hour increase in daily utilization. Every seat per aircraft went up from 67 to 109 during the period. The post-World War II piston engine fleet. At the end of 1946, the Eastern Fleet consisted of 51 DC-3s and 19 DC-4s, achieving an average block speed of 160 miles per hour. The first Lockheed 649 Constellation entered service in 1947, followed by the 1049 Super Constellation in 1951, the Martin 404 in 1952, the DC-7B in 1955, the Convair 440 in 1957, and the Electra turboprop in 1959. The last piston engine airplane delivery was the DC-7B in May of 1958. How the switch from props to jets evolved. The year 1955 was Eastern's 21st consecutive one of profitable operations. During that year, the directors approved a major five-year fleet expansion program involving three steps with orders for 60 more piston engine airplanes, 40 turboprop Electra, and 19 DC-8 turbojets for a total of 118 uh, new deliveries. The first step was an order for 30 more DC-7Bs, 10 Super G Constellations, and 20 Convair 440s. The second was an order for 40 Electras for rapid delivery, all in 1958 and 1959. The third step was the order in December 1959, 1955 for 19 DC-8s plus six options at a price of $6.5 million each. However, Eastern took delivery of only 16 DC-821s. The airline that doesn't plan for the future may not have one. 
Five years ago, Eastern saw the future in a remarkable aircraft. Now it's here. The new Boeing 757, the most advanced, most fuel-efficient commercial jet ever built. It's going to help Eastern hold down the cost of flying for years to come. We earn our wings for Activities at Candler Field, as told in the Newswing, Volume 1, Number 1, uh, which is from the official Oregon Pitcairn Aviation Incorporated. This is dated September 1927. Candler Field, the airport of Atlanta, Georgia, which is to be the southern terminus of the Pitcairn Air Mail Service from New York, is a scene of considerable activity at this time. While the Air Mail Service is not expected to start before November, preparations are now underway for the commencement of local passenger flying and student instruction by Pitcairn Aviation, Incorporated. In view of the fact that Atlanta is the terminus of this airmail line, the Pitcairn equipment at the field will be somewhat more elaborate than at the intermediate airports. The hangar, which measures approximately 60 feet by 120 feet, will be fully equipped with shops, etc., for the maintenance of mail planes at the southern end of the line. This building is well underway, and it is anticipated that we will start passenger-carrying activities at Candor Field not later than October 15th. The city has been carrying on extensive improvements at Candor Field, looking to the enlargement and better arrangement of the airport. When the alterations are completed, Atlanta will have an airport of which it may well be proud. Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. The Hijacking of Eastern 401 by Tom Walby. A young pilot's first flight as second officer on the DC-861. Eastern pilots had a bidding system, Section 28 of the pilot's contract, where we could, on a regular basis, bid for various equipment and duty positions in that aircraft based on our seniority. We were paid based on the gross weight of the aircraft and the duty position, so most pilots bid for the biggest equipment and the highest duty position that they could hold. 
When I was hired in April of 67, 1967, I was assigned as a flight engineer, our second officer, on the Lockheed Electra, and by the Section 28 bid effective January 1, 1969, I was able to hold a DC-8-61 second officer bid. School for this position progressed satisfactorily, and the first leg of my first flight after checkout was a flight from New York Kennedy to Miami, operating Eastern Flight 401 on January 2, 1969. During the crew's briefing, we discovered that it was also Captain Dennis Van Hus' first flight on the DC-861 without an accompanying Czech airman. The first officer, J.R. Cooper, was the most experienced in that aircraft, and I believe that he'd been on it for about six months. Our Miami-based stewardesses were Nancy Wilson, Kathy Geronimo, Linda Abbott, Abbott, Kathy McCormick, and Catherine Tolan. As we walked out to our aircraft, we noticed that an Air Mexico flight was at the gate next to ours. Its flight number was also 401. All went normally throughout the boarding and taxi, and we took off at 9.52 p.m., expecting to arrive in Miami at 12.30 a.m., Soon after we had reached our cruising altitude of flight level 350, uh, 35,000 feet, it was obvious from an elevated noise level that a disturbance was taking place in the passenger cabin. Next, the cockpit door was opened by the senior stewardess, who was uh, followed by a man with a gun holding an 18-month-old boy, Adam Levy of Massapequit. New York had been removed from his mother's lap by the hijacker on his way to the front of the aircraft, and a woman, Linda Greenwich, later identified as his wife, holding an infant. The hijacker was holding his gun at the head of the boy he had taken. Understandably, this boy was very upset and crying, not to mention the anxiety of the mother. The hijacker told the captain that he wanted to go to Havana and kept repeating the words, Black Power, Havana, Black Power, Havana. He sat on the cockpit jump seat while the woman stood behind me. The gun was being pointed from the captain to the boy to me. I had one look at the gun, a revolver, and it was loaded. Recently, the FAA had introduced a transponder code for a hijacking. This was a method of alerting air traffic control of the situation without having to use normal radio communications. The hijacker had requested that we turn on the cockpit speakers so that he could hear all radio transmissions. The first officer smoothly set the hijack code into our transponder. At the time, the code was 3100, 3100. After several normal radio communications without any confirmation that our code had been received, the first officer radioed, Eastern 401, squawking 3100. ATC responded with, Roger, Eastern 401, clear to flight level 310. Oh, we see you're being hijacked. Needless to say, our crew all thought, thanks a lot. And the hijacker told us to shut down all communications.
Now that our hijacker was sufficiently agitated, he told us by now there were was more one more flight attendant in the cockpit, which was becoming crowded. He told us to face forward and that he and the woman were going to change clothes. They appeared to have been wearing typical clothing. He in a Nehru jacket and slacks, and she in a skirt and sweater. They changed into African-style robes and left their former clothing on the cockpit floor. Eastern had been involved in several hijackings to Cuba before this this flight, so appropriate navigation charts and rudimentary Spanish-English phrase cards had been placed in most of the cockpits, including ours. As we approached Cuba, we were able to make contact with local air traffic control, which cleared us to approach and land at Havana's San Jose Marti International Airport. I remember that the captain made a comment to the hijacker who was holding his gun on the boy to the effect that this was going to be his first landing in this type aircraft without a Czech airman, and would he please not point the gun at the child? I also remember thinking, who would ever believe that? Landing was exceptionally smooth, and after taxing to a parking stand, the cabin door was open, and the hijacker, the woman, and their infant were escorted from the airplane by Cuban military. Thinking that it would be a very interesting souvenir, I took the woman's skirt from the cockpit floor and put it in my flight bag. Next, a Cuban mechanic came in and asked if there were any write-ups that, and he said that uh, he was fully qualified DC-8 mechanic and would be happy to fix any minor mechanical problems. The captain politely refused this kind of offer. He then asked if we wanted him to sign off the maintenance log. The answer was not quite as polite. We joined the passengers in a terminal building for a breakfast of scrambled eggs, bacon, and coffee. Several cigar and liquor shops opened, and they appeared to be very successful in selling items to the passengers. A loudspeaker announced announcement called for the chief engineer to identify himself, and it took me a few minutes to realize that they were calling for me. I was escorted by two military types, armed and with automatic weapons, to the ramp and asked if we were carrying U.S. mail. I said that we probably were and that it was usually loaded in the rearmost cargo compartment. They didn't want anything to do with that compartment for the rest of our stay in Havana. I was asked to open the cargo doors. This caused me a small problem because my training had omitted any hands-on operation of these doors. That task belonged to maintenance, and I had been told, you'll never need to know that. Again, Who would ever believe that the chief engineer couldn't even open cargo doors? Once the doors were eventually opened, I was asked to supervise the emptying out of all the baggage. The Cubans searched for the bags that were checked by the hijacker who had given them the claim checks, but after almost an hour, they couldn't be located. We later discovered that nine bags had been loaded on Air Mexico Flight 401, parked next to us at JFK. By the way, since that day, I have never failed to insist on hands-on training in the operation of all external doors on new aircraft to which I was assigned. The three front-end crew members were interviewed by Cuban authorities and asked various questions about our flight.
They asked for our names, and the captain responded, Van Huss. The follow-up question is, Van, your first name? Elicited? No, it's Captain. That set the tone for the rest of the interview. I was very happy that they didn't search us because I, I still had my Marine Corps Reserve ID and really didn't want to get into my experience with targeting missile sites just outside of Havana. The Cubans planned to bus the passengers 70 miles to Veradero for transport back to Miami. This had been done in the past because the Cubans claimed that Havana's runway was too short for large aircraft. The captain told them that if the passengers did not come with us on our DC-8, then we just wouldn't take the bleep bleep thing back to Miami. In the end, Eastern sent two aircraft to Havana to collect 122 passengers. Fifteen others were sick, mostly with flu, and were allowed to come with the crew on our DC-8. We arrived in Miami just after sunup and were greeted by customs officers who immediately confiscated any cigars or liquor that had been acquired by passengers in Havana. The crew was hustled into a debriefing room with FBI and security personnel, and we relayed, as best we could, the story as it had transpired. One specific question that came up was, what were they wearing? No one could remember much about what the hijacker had worn, but when it came to the woman, I said that I had some very accurate information and produced her skirt that I had put in my bag. The response from the FBI was not quite complimentary regarding the dexterity attributed to airline pilots. Identification of the hijacker Tyrone Ellington Austin had been determined after his bags were searched in Mexico City. That of the woman came to me years later. About three weeks after this event, I was called to the chief pilot's office to answer a question. Who had signed the one for 180 breakfasts in Havana? I knew that I hadn't, and the captain, who had reported sick two weeks previously, couldn't answer. The Cubans had sent a bill to Eastern, and no one was quite sure who was responsible for signing the check. They had charged Eastern $25 per meal. Captain Van Huss died of a heart attack in 1976 at age 61. We lost a bona fide, bona fide hero that day. On April 22, 1971, I received a call from the FBI. I was told that they had been following Tyrone and that he had re-entered the United States through Canada. Evidently, the Cubans didn't want him either. The agent told me that he had bad news. Tyrone had been killed the day before while trying to hold up a bank in Manhattan. I missed the service. The FBI arrested Linda Joyce Greenwich, age 39, living as Mrs. Hazelin Etina in Albany, New York, on July 25, 1988. She was charged with air piracy, interfering with the crew with a deadly weapon, and interfering with the crew. Mrs. Greenwich admitted her part in the hijacking, claiming Austin had beaten and terrorized her into cooperating with him.
She pleaded guilty to the last and least serious charge and in November was sentenced to six months plus four and a half years of probation. The judge gave her credit for good behavior and for time served since her arrest and she served another month in jail. I'm not sure if anybody ever paid for the breakfast and the FBI kept the skirt. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. Tickled her fancy. Captain J. Hamilton Ham Brown was a good friend, a real Virginia gentleman, and an excellent pilot. He also had a great sense of humor and the ability to teach people what they should or should not do. I recall one trip as a passenger from Miami to New York on a 749 Constellation. Back in those days, it was typical for the same front crew and flight attendants to be together for several trips. On this particular trip, the two flight attendants had been on a number of flights with Ham. One of the girls was a real worker, but the other one goofed off for long periods. She usually ended up in the lavatory primping or reading for 20 or 30 minutes. This particular flight was about two hours out of Miami when a hard-working girl went up to the cockpit to tell Ham that the other girl had been in the lavatory for about 10 minutes. Ham came out armed with a metal coat hanger, a rubber band, and a feather which he had brought on board for this occasion. He stretched the coat hanger so that it was long with a slight bend. He then used the rubber band to place the feather on one end. Then went back to the unoccupied lavatory next to the one occupied by the flight attendant. On the 749 Constellation, the two lavatories at the rear of the cabin were adjacent to each other, served by only one master can. Actually, it was comparable to an old-fashioned two-holder, except that there was a petition between them. About 30 seconds after Ham entered, the door to the other lavatory burst open, and with a loud shout, the flight attendant dashed out, pulling up her pants while running. It was a sight to behold. Ham had maneuvered the bent coat hanger and feather into the hole. Somehow, he managed to make contact with the girl on the other side. The flight attendant never really knew what tickled her fancy, and apparently was too embarrassed to discuss it later. Ham told me sometime later that as far as he knew, the girl never goofed off again on a flight. It was his way of getting more productivity from his crew. He certainly had a good point. The relationship that brought Edward, Eddie, Vernon Rickenbacker. For Harry Lindquist and myself, I'd like to thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you'll come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8, 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry as it will be in the archive on the Internet about 15 minutes after broadcast. You can go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash 
Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, the same way that you tuned us in to listen to tonight's episode one. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest to be broadcast. If you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you'd like to share with others, why not send it to us? Our email is eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. We're recorded and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with this familiar theme music of our great airline, Eastern. Good night to the Eastern family. See you next week.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.